the picture of the hunching man there as the sort of logo says it all. In other words, we're, we encourage people to come that have got questions, we're trying to work it out, trying to come to some conclusions and we try and find some answers to that. But it's not a hard sell, we're not trying to push it on you, um, we just want you to weigh it up, consider it, think about it uh, and see if you can't incorporate that into your own life and learn something from it. I mean, it has to be said that more than we realise, we are being programmed by our society. You know, both at school, at university, in our institutions, on the media, on the telly, there are subtle messages all the time coming through. And generally speaking, they are not God messages. God generally is not mentioned at all, apart from as a swear word. You listen to that and you'll find, I mean, I remember Tony Blair said at the end of his premiership, he didn't do God. I mean, he actually did go to church, but he didn't do God publicly. And generally, nobody does. So by default, God has dropped out of the minds of our culture almost entirely. We don't think about what God says or what God cares about. It's generally what we care about. So one of the main purposes of this thing is to, is to maybe open some windows and help us to relook at things and question what is being told us and be critical about it and actually get a fresh look at the Bible, God's Word, and see if there isn't more insight there than we thought. Okay, so there's our, our logo, the man looking out to the distant mountains, and this is the heading for this series, Investigations. I nearly gave it another title, uh, The Footprints of God because um, uh, this was not the original, uh, my original idea for the series three. It was more sort of steady stream, you know, Christian teaching, etc., etc. Um, but uh, this fitted more the way that we were going, and so we're following this, and I call it the footprints of God. Well, I haven't done, but I mean, I nearly did. I did it with a question mark after it. Uh, call it the footprints of God, because mostly God is not high-profile, either in life or in history, for most people. He is invisible. He moves quietly, moves through history. Even when he does something dramatic, it's very easy to find another cause and to find another explanation. You know, even if something really dramatic happens in your life, you can put it down to coincidences or whatever if you want to. But a few things have happened in history that are so profound, so deep, they have made an imprint even now, sometimes thousands of years later. So we're going to try and follow those through. We started with Noah's Ark, possibly the most iconic of the lot, but we're going to go on to the Tower of Babel uh, and uh, the Sodom and Gomorrah and uh, uh, moving on down to Joseph. Uh, you remember the Bible says, went down into Egypt and then uh, Moses, the Exodus, Mount Sinai, and then finally the Ark of the Covenant. That, um, you know, I mean, Indiana Jones, you remember, was looking for it. Um, and they think they found it, but mm, well, we're going to be looking at that. So hopefully, I, I mean, I said already, hopefully it won't be too nerdy. I mean, I've spent a long time collecting this information. I spent as much time taking stuff out of this talk as putting stuff in. You know, I thought there's too much, take it out and so on. So um, without any more ado, we're going to move off to the first of our, the of our themes, which is Noah's Ark. Okay. And the question that I put on the leaflet that we gave out, we've got a few at the back if you want one to give to friends, which would be great, is have they actually found Noah's Ark? And I, and I want to say at the beginning that that is the main focus of it. If they have found it, 
then that is amazing. I mean, that is really more earth-shattering than almost any other single event in history, and I shall try and explain why at the end of the talk. So have they actually found Noah's Ark? I shall also include a few other bits and pieces like the flood and what caused it and stuff like that along the way. But the focus will be on whether they've actually found the Ark still in the world today. For me, this has been a 20-year journey. I was trying to work it out. It was just before the millennium when I first started to look at this material and to consider it and to check it out. Since then, there's been considerably more information, more stuff online, more books written, more researchers. I mean, now, I mean, I could probably count them on the fingers of two hands, I suppose, but even so, that is significantly more than when I first started looking at it, when there was one lone bloke that pretty well everybody discredited. However, you'll find if you look online, the debate continues. There are loads of people that disagree, that find fault, that you know, make all sorts of attacks and arguments and so on. Often it seems to me they're the people that haven't actually been out there and seen it. Of the people that have been there, they seem to be pretty much agreed as to what they've seen. However, we have to make up our mind. We've got to weigh it up. You've got to weigh the evidence. Things are often not completely simple. You know what I mean? You have to say, well, I, I agree with that. I'm not so sure about that, and so on. Okay, so iconic story, Noah's Ark. You get cartoons and pictures and fun things and giraffes sticking out the top of the boat. You know, it's often a little tiny tub that you don't have enough room for the animals and that one says it all. But of course, it's so, it's so well known. I mean, we've got it on jigsaw puzzles. It's on a, a, a sort of a model kit there and so on and so on. So uh, Noah's Ark is probably known globally, I suspect. And in fact, uh, as we go through, you'll see it's more global than even we would think. However, the whole thing hit the, you know, hit the headlines uh, in modern times, I think probably around about that issue of Life magazine. That was in 1960, and they took that picture that had been, or they put it up, up there, that had been taken by a Turkish pilot uh, in the Turkish Air Force that took it from high, from high, obviously from pretty high up, and he couldn't help feeling it did look like a boat. Uh, it didn't look like a natural formation, and experts have actually said it, they, wouldn't, they have never seen a natural formation looking like that. However, um, uh, we will look at that again in a moment, but first, uh, this is how I'm going to divide the talk. First of all, the prelude. What caused it? What brought it out? Secondly, we're going to look at the ark, and as I say, that's my main focus. Thirdly, we're going to look at the flood itself, the dynamics of it, the ex extensiveness of it, how big was it, how much impact did it have on the earth, and so on. And then fourthly, we are going to look at the aftermath. What happened after it? It's my belief, actually, that we are still living in the aftermath of the flood now. It may be that the global warming that we're seeing is still the leftover of a world that is still warming up from the flood event and everything that came alongside it. But we shall see, and we shall follow that through. Okay, prelude. Um, uh, I'm going to read from Genesis chapter 6 and verses 1 to 8. It's a slightly naughty picture, I'm sorry about that, but it is an old master. So I thought if, if you actually tried to do justice to the, uh, what, the way the Bible describes it, it would probably be X-rated. So uh, that, was, uh, that was, oh yeah, it's a bit naughty, isn't it? Never mind. Don't look at the naughty bits and we'll be all right. Uh, okay, Genesis chapter 6 and verse 1. 
when men began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God, and most commentators believe that they are some sort of angelic beings, that they are spiritual beings, they're not just your ordinary human blokes. The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they married any of them that they chose. And then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal. His days will be 120 years. So God has already decided that he is going to have to shorten the lifespan of man. Our capacity for mischief is so considerable that he has to cut us short. And uh, he's already doing that. And of course, later on the Bible says it gets shortened even more. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterwards, when the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them. So the product of these marriages were somewhat odd, different, giants, so, the, so the, the myths say. They were the heroes of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. And the Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures that move along the ground and birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. But Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. That's a, that's a very brief description. Actually, if you were to go into some of the other ancient documents, you find there's more detail and a whole lot of stuff filled in. But I didn't want to focus on that tonight, except to say that God didn't do this without a cause. God did not wipe out the human race and all the animals on the earth just because he happened to fancy it. Stuff had got really bad. And Genesis, in a sense, tones it down. But I mean, a few things to note. First of all, there was probably quite a large population by then. In verse 1 it said, men had begun to increase in number on the earth. According to a biblical chronology, the earth had been going for about 1,700 years. Now, I mean, people tend to multiply exponentially. So in 1,700 years, it is highly likely, and they had long lives and they probably had loads of children, it's highly likely there were millions of people on the earth by this time. Quite considerable cities and communities and peoples in the earth in many places. Secondly, we notice, and we've already commented on that, there was some sort of implication of angelic corruption. Uh, the sons of God came into the daughters of men and chose whom they wanted. They were fairly dominant, bully characters, and again, it comes in the myths of many ancient peoples, the Greeks, the Romans, the whole lot, they've all got these myths, these legends of giant peoples in the past that, uh, that, that romped about the earth. The Babylonian stories tell of them being really pretty bad. So it's, it's pretty, you know, the Bible is understating it, if anything. So there were some kind of evil giants that undoubtedly corrupted the earth and made it even worse than it otherwise would have been. I mean, man actually can get pretty bad all on his own, but these guys made it even worse. There was widespread wickedness. I mean, look at this uh, fifth verse here of, of Gen what, what an indictment. Um, uh, the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become. And that, listen to this. Every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. I mean, it's really, that's terrible, really. I mean, you, you've not got to think about a few people doing some naughty stuff. I mean, this is, this is rampant. 
This is violence and evil on an unprecedented scale. And the Bible says the Lord was deeply grieved that he'd made men, the whole creation, that he'd made it. There was violence, a bit further on, in verses 11 and 12, it goes on to say, the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. And the Lord saw how corrupt the earth had become for all the people on the earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people. So there was, a, there was a lot of provocation. I, say, this, I think it's understated and abbreviated, but the Bible gives us enough to understand that stuff was really bad. I mean, for me, I find it um, easiest to think of it as a cancerous kind of situation. You know, evil is actually like cancer. It eats into a person's soul, and uh, if you give way to it and welcome it and, in, and, and gather it up, plenty of examples of that in people's lives, um, then it, it, it spreads like a canker and grows. And the same happens in a society. A society can become so cancerous, it's almost irredeemable. And it seems that this was what had happened here. It was so bad. And therefore, what the, what the, the flood didn't cure it, but it was surgery. It was, it was God had to cut it away and stop it before it got any worse, otherwise his total plan for the saving of men and women would be in jeopardy. So that is, that's how I understand it. You might want to come back on that and I'll do my best to answer any questions later on. Okay, so then we come to the ark itself. This is my main focus. Did the ark actually really happen? And I'll read through a few verses. I'm having to abbreviate a little bit. Uh, because there's, there's chapters and chapters on this subject, and I can't, I can't read all of it, it'll take us all night. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all the people. Well, we've just read that. I'm surely going to destroy both them and the earth, so make yourself an ark of cypress wood. I think the original says gopher wood, but nobody knows quite what that is, so the versions have tried to find a substitute. Uh, make rooms in it and coat it with pitch, inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 450 feet long. Not actually 450 feet, it was 300 cubits. We'll say a bit more about that in a moment. 75 feet wide and 45 feet high. This was a big vessel. Make a roof for it and finish the ark to within 18 inches of the top. Put a door in the side of the ark and make lower, middle and upper decks. And I'm going to bring flood waters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens. Every creature that has the breath of life in it, everything on earth will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures and so on and so on. So God gives... Noah, familiar instructions, two by two, apart from the clean animals in which there were seven of those, or it could have been seven pairs of those, so they could make sacrifices and eat them. Okay, uh, well, now we've come now to a more, a more down-to-earth picture. The first, the first one we've seen uh, is the picture that is up there, uh, you know, taken from a high-flying aircraft. Uh, this is fairly much as, uh, as it looks today. And... Uh, if I just put a few things down there, first of all, it, it's around about 5,000 feet above sea level. Actually, higher up the mountain, like uh, up, up the top up there, it's probably about 6,000 feet above sea level. Anyway, it's quite high. 
So if there proves to be a large boat, uh, 5,000 or 6,000 feet above sea level, that in itself is a bit noteworthy, I think you have to say. Now, when, uh, when that story broke on Life magazine in 1960, a group of Americans who were quite keen, I guess, archaeologists and scientists and people like that, you know, put together a team and they came out to visit it. So I, I, can't, I don't know how long after it was, uh, but not that long after, 1960, this team went out. Uh, they chipped around with things, they even blew a hole in the side of the ark. They only had a week to be there, which is not exactly a lot for a scientific investigation. Um, and they came to the conclusion that it was simply a, a freaky natural structure. It was simply rock. It, w it wasn't the ark at all. And for a time, everything went quiet. However, there was one guy, this is the guy that first came across it, he was a Seventh-day Adventist, and they, they call him, very, he's dead now, but I mean, he was supposed to be very controversial, though I never found him controversial. He seemed to be quite scientific. He was an anaesthetist, and uh, he would earn his money doing his anaesthetics, and then he would travel out uh, to do his archaeology. But it was, the, it was the ark that got him started. He couldn't let it, he, he was sure that there was something more to this uh, that meets the eye. And so eventually he came out, financed his own trip, uh, and he's of course been followed by a whole number of other ones since. And he formed the opinion that maybe the ark was petrified wood. You know that the, the, the um, limestone uh, soaked water and so on can soak through wood and gradually transform it. It's, you can still see it, I mean you find it all over the world, it's as hard as rock, but it looks like wood. And it's as heavy as rock. It's actually been, all the molecules of the wood have been replaced uh, by the various minerals and pieces of, of stuff that have soaked through it and, and metamorphosed it while it's being like there. He thought, well, it could be petrified wood. So he took some samples. He took a sample of the actual ground roundabout. So he's quite scientific. Uh, of the rock structure around and near what he thought was the ark, and then he also took some bits of the ark itself, and he sent them off to the Galbraith Laboratory, which is quite a, a prestigious laboratory in America, and this is um, the first uh, report that he got back. As you see, that is the sample of results from the surrounding rock. He told them uh, what it was, um, from the earth surrounding it, <coughs> and then this one was the second one, the Certificate of Analysis, of the material that he'd taken from the ark itself. Now, I mean, if you look at that, I don't know, you probably can maybe read it a bit. It's a bit, a bit super scientific, loads of small quantities of tiny minerals and little bits of stuff that uh, are all mixed in with it. But the significant measurements in this uh, is that measurement there. The amount of carbon in the rock roundabout is one point, I think it's 88, something like that, 1.88, just over 1% of carbon, presumably from uh, dead vegetation that got kind of mixed in and incorporated and so on. You know that carbon is a clear sign of something, uh, something living, because uh, all, uh, you know, wood and material and all that sort of stuff is all carbon-based. Uh, oh, oh, look at that, I missed that. Uh, when he came to the second one, of course, it's nearly 5%. Now that left him to the conclusion that it was certainly consistent with the idea that what we're looking at here uh, is not a rock structure, but a wooden structure that has been petrified and has slowly changed. Now, of course, that then opened up a whole load of things. Well, how, what do you, you know, how do you do that? Where do you go from there? 
So here are a few more details on it. And again, I, I got this picture off online. Uh, the, the front of it, the, the measurement is 515 feet. Now I hear you say, but your Bible said 450 feet. That is absolutely right. However, that is probably because Moses would have used the royal Egyptian cubit. The cubit, you probably all know this, it's based on the Latin for an elbow, which is a cube, it's like a cube, cube something. Uh, so a cubit is the distance from an elbow to the tip of the finger. Like a foot, it's a foot, you know. <laughs> so they just, the, the cubit was one of the, it's one of the oldest measurements in the world. It's before meters and anything like that, or inches and feet or anything like that. And a cubit could be anything, a Hebrew cubit was about 18 inches, which is why the Bible has put it as 450 feet for 300 cubits. A foot and a half for each one, obviously. Um, however, the Royal Egyptian cubit is, uh, I've got it here, 20.62 inches. It's interesting. I actually measured my arm. I told you I'm a nerd, aren't I? I measured my arm. I've, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit under six foot, but my arm is 19 inches. So, so I'm taller than a Hebrew, but shorter than an Egyptian, by the sounds of it. I mean, it does raise the question, how tall would the people be that had their cubits that were 20.62 inches? It's an interesting side issue, isn't it? And there is lots of history that indicates that people generally were bigger pre-flood and probably in the immediate post-flood period. But Moses, that wrote the book of Genesis, would have used the Egyptian cubit, and before the people settled in the Promised Land, almost certainly that would have been the universal measurement. Now, if you measure 350, boy, I spent ages with a bit of paper working this out, uh, then you get 515 feet or thereabouts, given a little bit. So the length of it, I find, is really amazing. It is exactly 300 cubits, as the Bible says it. Now, you'll see round the, in the bottom there, uh, the bumpy sort of thing around, that goes all the way around. And it, when you come up close to them, I did have a close-up, but I'm, it was one of the ones that bit the dust. Um, but they, it's, it's like, they're like rib timbers, the rib timbers of the hull that kind of come up. It's bumpy all the way along uh, the top of the thing, which is interesting. Uh, okay, now it's thought that the original resting place of the ark wasn't down where it is now at all. Uh, it's where that arrow is. You see that arrow at the top there? It was up there uh, underneath that, that really characteristic escarpment. Um, <coughs> And Ron Wyatt found that because when he was investigating up there, he found a whole bed of manganese nodules. Now, at the time, I didn't know what that is, and I still only vaguely know what that is, but it is a metal, and his conclusion was that these had been used in some kind of a process, some kind of a metal-working process, and that they were waste stuff, and they'd been put in the bottom of the boat as a kind of keel, or maybe in the, in the lower part of the boat, in order to give it weight to weigh it down, and that had got left behind, so there's a whole raft of these manganese nodules there up at the top, which is almost certainly where the boat originally came to rest. It slid down the mountain at some point in history and impaled itself on that rock. You see that rock there? There's a limestone butt there, and the boat would have come down, hit that and swung round, with the line of the flow of whatever brought it down. Now, what did bring it down? Well, we'll look at that in a minute. 
Now, looking up another guy, I found this fellow in America. I got his book. It cost me an arm and a leg, so I, I hope you value this. Um, David Allen Deal, he, he was a linguist and quite a student and, and you know, very nerdy. And uh, he came to the, he was looking at ancient linguistics and everything, and he came to the conclusion that this place could be identified with the name Mesha. It was Mesha Island. Uh, and that's interesting because it, the book of Genesis actually does mention this uh, in Genesis chapter 10 and verse 21. And it talks about the sons were born to Shem. You remember Shem uh, was the oldest, as far as we know, the oldest of Noah's sons and was the father of the Semites because of which the people of Israel are modern, uh, modern uh, uh, line. Uh, he was also the ancestor of all the sons of Eber, who was the father of the Hebrews. So Shem is kind of the royal line, and it says that, that all his, he goes through all the list of the people, and then he says the region where they live stretched from Mesha towards Sephar in the eastern hill country. So it is actually thought that Shem probably settled in the mountains when Noah did. Uh, actually, there is an, another old load of pictures I've got of where they, it looks like they did um, metalworking and hybridization and working on plants and all sorts of things, but some of that will come later on in the course on another occasion. But very interesting, the remains there, because it's such an empty area. I mean, it's quite a violent area. The Kurds are in that area, and the Turks do not like the Kurds. So, you know what I mean? You can get shot quite easily in that area. Um, but anyway, it's thought that originally, that's where the ark grounded, right by that escarpment that was sticking up proud uh, out of the ocean, and they settled there. Mesha, interesting, is the same root as Moses. You remember Moses got the name because he was taken out of the water. So Mesha also has that name and it kind of recurs a lot around the area. They even, he even found a name for, for the, the settlement that they, they, I mean this is obviously an artist's description, there's nothing left of it now, the ark has been swept away and when the ark was swept away, I mean they would have used all the bits of the ark in order to build their houses and you know, form their initial civilization, and so on, and so on, and so on. But he called it Meshanaxuin. And uh, his translation of that was, I mean, and I have to tell you this on faith, I don't know this, I'm not a linguist, but he said, uh, Naxuin means Noah's Zion. So that that was actually, and, and if, can you pronounce that second thing there? Nok, Nokhtrin. Uh, which he said means Noah's capital. So it was known, probably after Noah's time, as the place that was his capital, where he first established. Now you never know about that, do you? The Bible obviously doesn't carry all that, but I mean, these guys have found some amazing um, uh, testimony to the ancient... Thing. In modern Kurdish, that mountain there, the, the, uh, the escarpment, is called Mashur Dag. Uh, it's all called, also called Masherdag, but that's another thing. But Masherdag, Masher, E-R, U-R, Masherdag, U-R, actually means a resurrection mountain. And, uh, you know, maybe it was, a, maybe in history, and it, it appears, I mean, from his research, I mean, look at that there. Uh, he, oh, well, sorry, pressing the wrong button. Uh, there you'll see the ark, uh, in the middle of it all. And he discovered, do, doing archaeology on the spot, that there were thousands of houses here once. Or at least not thousands, a thousand. 
now that I think about it. He reckoned that there was a population of, uh, that filled about a thousand abodes there. So it was quite a significant place. Um, but of course, eventually the ark slid down the hill to a lower place and that pretty much ended it. And by that time, of course, as the waters were going down, of course, it was, you know, initially you didn't want to go down, it was all mud. You know what I mean? You imagine, you imagine a flood in Lydney this week. You know, you don't want to go traipsing through all the wet bits, do you? And so uh, initially they built their settlement up in the mountains, but slowly as the waters assuaged, they went down. So uh, eventually that became a necropolis, uh, a place where people came to die and be buried. And he said that they found hundreds of thousands of graves there. And maybe the fact that it was Resurrection Mountain was the, was the reason why they did it. And there was a whole cult that then started to surround that. Of course, probably became quite heathen, but actually all out of that. So, you know, I hope you find that interesting. I find it fascinating to think that there is a whole chunk of history that you, you're probably not going to get anywhere else, so you've got it here. Um, now, that picture at the top, that is, a, uh, that is a stele engraved on a rock that is up the top there. Um, and you'll see how interesting that is. That, that shows that, the, the escarpment there, along there, but it also shows a, volca a volcano there, a cone, which is not there today. It also shows a boat with eight people in it and two birds flying in the air. So it didn't take a brilliant brain to guess what that was meant to do. That is about um, 2000 BC, so it's after the event by quite a long way, but it's still quite ancient. Uh, inscription up the top there. The volcano now is gone, so it is thought in fact that what probably happened, the volcano spewed out stuff, um, probably some lava, possibly a load of mud and silt and all kinds of stuff out of the volcano and it was that that took, you know, it'd have to be something pretty forcible. This was a, this was a big craft. It wouldn't wash away in a stream. It, it needed a fairly big torrent. And there are signs of that. If you look back at the aerial photographs, that there was a whole sweep of stuff that actually swept the boat down until it impaled itself on that limestone rock at the bottom. And then it uh, rotated to go in line. So there it is. <clears throat> now that's not the end of the story. This is a very geologically active area. In 1978, soon after they'd started investigating it, there was an earthquake in the area again. And nothing changed apart from the fact that all the land round about dropped and the ark didn't. Which to me is interesting. You know what I mean? If that was natural rock, that would, that would go with the rocks. The fact that it held together and maintained itself when the rest of the ground went down, to me, speaks volumes. So it's not just one bit of evidence. There is quite a lot of cumulative evidence. Oh, sorry. Uh, that's another picture of it, um, again, from above. And you can see now how, how it sticks up with quite, you know, sharp sides. In fact, the sides of the ark now are, are you know, they, you couldn't reach them. They're, they're pretty huge. Oh, look at that. It's, my computer's run away with itself. It's get, getting too enthusiastic. Uh, there you see the picture before the earthquake and there after. So you see the difference, uh, the way that that's just been lifted up as one whole thing, uh, indicating that it is a complete thing. Uh, strewn around in the area also, they found anchor stones. Um, we'll talk about that in a moment, but they know that they're deliberately carved because although it's a fairly rough piece of stone, the holes in the top of them are crafted. They are holes that are wider at one side and narrower at the other. 
so that you put a knot through them and the knot jams in them and that holds it. Um, and uh, they're, they're, that's an artist's impression. Uh, anchor stones apparently were used, I mean, uh, all, they found them all around the Mediterranean. That, uh, that's a Roman anchor stone, uh, which by comparison is, is tiny. I mean, these are big stones, which again says something, but that's, a, that's an artist's impression of, of how it would have been, that they kept the boat. It had no engine. You know what I mean? It is very risky in a, in, a, in a high swell if you don't have an engine. You need something to give yourself direction and to hold yourself stable or you're likely to breach sideways and be rolled over. Um, even in a big craft, it can be pretty scary to be on it. So it, it looks like they used these stones to weigh it down as a kind of ballast uh, under it. And they've been dropped in a bit of a pattern, in a way. You'll see there, there's a whole, uh, there's a whole load of them up there. Uh, you remember, uh, down here somewhere, there was, the, uh, th there was Mesha uh, with the, the escarpment. I would imagine that that's what they were aiming for, insofar as they could aim for anything. And when they saw they were heading towards the high ground, they'd been sending out the birds and so on and so on. But I mean, how do you land a craft when you've got no engine? of that size, 515 feet long. Uh, well, they dropped off all the anchor stones. They obviously thought they dropped off a couple, they maybe dropped those two first. Uh, then they obviously let go a whole load there because nobody's moved them. <laughs> they're, wh they're whopping. You know, you can't, nobody can lift them up. Uh, and then they dropped another couple here soon after they, the, I mean, that's where it now is. It's actually obviously going somewhere up here. Uh, and they dropped them off there. So you can see a bit of a pattern in the way that they were doing it. And I, I can really feel myself into Noah's position as you're trying to captain a craft without an engine of that kind of size. Well, you have to say the Lord was obviously with them. Now, they've also done some work on the shape now with ground-penetrating radar. All the time, the problem has been that the authorities wouldn't let them dig. Obviously, it's a fairly... Uh, precious artifact. They've kept the Turkish authorities, uh, you know, appraised of everything um, and they've been given permission to do what they've done, but they weren't given any permission to dig into it. So they had to try and get some sense of what was underneath. And they got this ground penetrating radar, which at the time was cutting edge. It didn't have, you know, it wasn't hardly known. I've seen it now on the television, they're using it all the time. It sends down a radar signal and it can detend any, detect any inconsistencies uh, in the ground, you know, for, to quite a depth. So if it's a different sort of substance, if it's a metal substance, or if it's a wooden substance, or if it's some kind of different sort of substance that's different from the surrounding rock, it will show an echo on the, on the radar. And they went through over the whole craft, uh, putting a mark, I think they did it with stones, wherever, I mean, I presumably were able to find all their stones when they put them there, uh, put in their stones wherever they detected metal. And uh, then they joined up the stones with tapes. And I mean, it's very interesting. I wish I had an... Uh, uh, you can see the, the lines going right up to the top there, and they kind of zigzag around here. Part of that is where there's the, the rock is jutting out. So it's as if that caved in loads of the structure of the craft underground and you can see that that is reflected in the pattern of the of what were probably the rivets that were holding the whole thing together the metal rivets uh, they also um, uh, uh, eventually had the turkish government come along in 1989 
when they came to dedicate the, the visitor centre. A visitor centre has been given and opened there, um, and uh, we'll say a bit more about that in a moment. That's Ron Wyatt there at the day with all the Turkish guard. Now, the interesting thing was, uh, they said to him, well, what have you found? He said, well, not as much as we'd like to find because we can't dig. And, the, and the, uh, the, the Turkish guy, I think, was the Minister of the Interior or something like that, uh, high up anyway, uh, he, he, he just said to a soldier, because a whole load of soldiers, dangerous area, uh, he, said, he, he, he signaled to a soldier to dig, to dig up something. And I mean, in one spade, and he dug up two things, which uh, you have to say, it's pretty amazing. So I mean, that, underneath that pile, there is such a load of rich archaeological rubble, you probably find it hard to do. The first thing they dug up was a, was a piece of laminated deck timber. Uh, the second thing that they dug up was some what looked like petrified rivets. Um, they were interested in themselves. There's the, that's a, a slice of the timber. And remember, that is, that's, that's just deck. But you see the lines in it? It's, it, it's three layers. I mean, you, we'll all be aware of plywood. I mean, they've, that, that, it's a wood that is plywood, laminated, is much stronger. I mean, they make glue lamb beams now, you know, and they can support huge amounts of weight and so on. They're much stronger and much more resistant to rotting and wearing and so on. It looks like Noah was r right in with that technology. In fact, there are some bits that they found where the glue is actually squeezed out from between the layers and it's just kind of stayed there, locked in time. Uh, the petrified, that's one of the petrified rivets. I've got a load of photos of that, but I res restrained myself from showing you them all. You can only look at so many petrified rivets before you get weary with it. Uh, interestingly, they, they, the, the rivets, are, that's the rivet in the center, and then around it, there is a kind of a, a large washer. To give you a sense of scale, that's about three inches across. So these were big boys. I mean, they were whopping great big things. What is even more interesting, they, they took some, a piece of this and took it, sent it off to the laboratory for analysis, and they found that there was within, the, even with it petrified, traces of iron, aluminium, titanium, and manganese. Now you're looking at me, you know, you're thinking, oh, I know what that is. Well, I didn't know what that was. I looked it up online. I found actually that is quite a complicated and modern alloy. It has to be heated to about 1300 degrees centigrade, and it has to be mixed in certain proportions, in, in certain ways, in order to maximize its effectiveness. It is good for being lightweight, it's good for being malleable, it's easily extrudable, and it's rust resistant. I mean, no one knew that. That does not fit in with our image of pre-flood culture. But when you think about it, why not? I mean, within 150 years, we have gone from a horse and cart to a rocket ship to the moon. And we're not that clever. 150 years, that's all it took to do that. Noah was 500 on his own. He could have developed this technology. I suspect it was probably widely available in the culture. And the Bible says that they started doing metalworking quite early on uh, in the stage of things. But for me, that just is, that's really interesting. Well, I hope you find it interesting too. Uh, there's the sign for Noah's Ark, so the Turkish authorities have put the sign up, so should you go, you can find it on TripAdvisor, uh, with a few scornful comments, I have to say. 
Um, but uh, if you should want to go out there, you will eventually, when you're five kilometers away, you will find a sign of how to get there. There's the, the visitor center uh, for the Noah's Ark National Park. It's now become a national park. Now, I mean, the Turks know this. We don't know anything about it, do you? you know, we don't know nothing because uh, we live in our secular world and that doesn't fit in. What will we do with, a, with the idea of a flood that flooded the world and a man that saved everybody in one huge boat? That is on the inside of the shape of the craft and you'll see that it looks like, I mean, it, look, it looks really like a tree trunk. And it's thought that that is almost certainly one of the, uh, the deck timbers. You may have noticed that the craft that we see is quite wide. It's much wider than what the Bible says and that's probably because it was splayed. Uh, if you see that picture there, you see those are the deck joists, rib tim, uh, deck joists there, and then you see them dotted along the side there, and then those, the deck support timbers, they're sticking up through there. So, you know, they're, they're, these bits are sticking through in different places, and that one there, that guy pointing to, is, is one of these here, the deck joist that is sticking up, up near the top, near the top side, where the whole thing has been squashed down flat with the weight of the rock on top of it. Almost certainly it was buried under the mud flow, lava lake, whatever it was that came down on it and squashed and there it was slowly petrified and transformed to be preserved until today when the stuff came off it. Bit more subsurface, ra subsurface radar scan, they found the remains of bulkheads in it and I find those really interesting. They're pretty much what you'd expect in a craft of this size. Every large ship needs bulkheads in order to take the planking and the decking and so on and so on. The ribs really, the bones that hold the thing together. What I found really interesting is that shape there because I'd actually read something somewhere that they thought that, that Noah would have to have some very clever devices in order to um, enable the ship to be ventilated and to be drained. And it's thought that that might have been it, that that actually fulfilled. So, it's, I mean, I had a yacht once that had a, a keel. And the, the slit that the keel went down goes, goes right up inside the yacht. So if you took the keel out, you can see the sea down through the, down through the gap of the thing. So really what they had in the ark was some kind of a, a broad slit down the middle, going right down to the sea. As the ocean went up and down inside, it actually acted like bellows, putting air through the place and ventilating the whole thing through. You see, I wouldn't have thought of that. He didn't have aircon, but he did in a way. Clever stuff, low-tech aircon. It also would have been a good place for drainage and for empty. You know, you've got a lot of animals in there. You've got stuff that you've got to clear out and so on and so on. What about filling the ark? That's a question that people often ask. How would you get all those animals in? Millions and mi we're told there are millions and millions of animals. Well, actually, that's not true. Uh, in those early days, some pretty well-respected scientists have done some calculations. This would have been early on. The creatures in the earth would have been stock creatures. They wouldn't have transformed into... So, like the, you know, like humans were just one stock. From our stock came all the different branches of the human race, black and white and yellow and red, we all came from Noah, all from one stock. Because <laughs> once we started to separate in different environments and started to interbreed with smaller groups, we developed loads and loads of different branches. That happened with everything. Dogs started changing into wolves and foxes and coyotes and everything else. In the, in the, there was only one dog in there, probably. Maybe a couple, 
but not much. Maybe a couple of cats, a big cat and a small cat. And from one small cat came all the little cats. Or maybe they all came from one. What do you mean? You can get, you can get Thai dogs and St. Bernard's off the dog kind. So it's amazing what you, if you've got the stock in the beginning with the genetic capacity, you can breed loads. What we see now are loads and loads of varieties. You wouldn't have needed that. So in the beginning, there would have been probably thousands of kinds, many of which would have not have been that big. They reckon the average size of an animal would probably be about the size of a sheep, because most creatures are smaller. The younger animals, of course, would have been selected. You don't want pensioners going into the ark to repopulate the earth. So they would all have been younger ones, um, especially if they're dinosaurs. Um, <coughs> God may well have used two interesting characteristics of animals. First of all, their capacity to migrate, to find their way over massive distances, sometimes with immense precision. Fish can do it. And, you know, loads of animals can do it. They do it every year. They do it as a matter of course. We would have a job. We need a map or a sat-nav to do it. But they do it without any of that. They smell it. They find their way. Believe it's because they've, they've derived from the animals that God put in the ark. So migration would have been. Hibernation may have been something that God used. You know, so the animals weren't all awake. I mean, 12 months of being in an ark in darkness probably sent a lot of them to sleep. And many of them never quite got out of the habit. You know, whenever winter came, they uh, went off back to sleep again. Dinosaurs, of course, would have been included in that. Now, of course, we are told that dinosaurs died out millions of years before men, but actually there, are, there is a record in the memory of man of dinosaurs go, not all that long ago, actually, because they called them dragons then. They just, we gave them a new name, but they're just the same creatures that the ancients saw all the time. I mean, that there is a brass rubbing in Carlisle Cathedral in about 1400s. Now, that looks like a dinosaur to me. And you find loads of them in sculptures all over the world in different places, indicating that far from dying out millions of years before people, they were with us. They, we, people knew them. And the Bible, of course, describes them and so on. Okay, now I've taken a long time on that. Good. Oh, well, we're still okay. You're all more or less awake, so that's a blessing. Um, good. Let's have a look. Number three. We've just got a couple to do, and, uh, and the last one's quite brief. Famous last words. Okay, the flood then. I'm just going to read a couple, of, uh, a couple of verses here in Genesis chapter 7 and verses 11 to 12. I won't do a lot on this because in one of my earlier Way Up courses uh, in, in, in series 1, you can find most of this there, but I will just touch on it. Uh, verse 11 and 12. In the 600th year of Noah's life, on the 17th day of the second month, on that day, all the springs of the great deep burst forth and the floodgates of the heavens were opened and rain fell on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. Uh, so we're told that the water came from two directions. First of all, it came from the windows of heaven and it rained on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. Now, you know that rain will never flood the earth. I mean, rain can flood Lydney or it can flood Gloucestershire or it can flood... But it can't flood the earth because it's... It's the same water that keeps going round and round. It's off the ocean, it goes down onto the land, falls back down the river and comes back again. It just keeps coming back the same water. You can't flood the earth with rain. 
They say that if all the clouds in the sky dropped all their rain, so there was none left, it would make about an inch to the level of the oceans. It's not exactly going to flood the earth, is it? So, so what had to happen? Water had to come down that had previously not been there. And of course the Bible gives the clue to that in Genesis chapter 1 when it said God separated the waters and he put water above the firmament. That water that God had placed around the earth in the beginning came down during this period and flooded the earth. It and the earth reverted to what it had been in the beginning, which was a water-covered planet. In the beginning, in Genesis 1, it says the earth was covered with water. The, so the windows of heaven then were, were unique rain. Probably never seen rain before, couldn't be normal rain, but was the canopy that God had placed around the earth in his original greenhouse had collapsed and fallen down on the earth and the water returned. Now the springs of the great deep is what the Bible describes them, or the fountains of the great deep, however you put it. Uh, that would have been subterranean water. I mean, a lot of that has now gone back. And we know, I mean, there's, a, there's an ocean under Australia, I've heard. Not exactly an ocean, but there is a big sea. There is loads of, of water that has gone back under the earth and is, you know, deep down. Uh, but I'm, I'm assuming that that was part of God's original plan and that when it came to the, uh, the flood, it, 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 it was caused by massive geological upheaval and, uh, and catastrophe. <clears throat> it lasted for five months, so even longer than the rain falling down. It almost certainly was, was uh, accompanied by whopping volcanoes. I mean, in fact, they, you often find them talking today about supervolcanoes. Evidence in the past of volcanoes that were humongous, like Yellowstone National Park and other places around the world, you know, uh, and so on, that were, that were huge uh, volcanoes, massive eruptions, the like of which we're generally not getting. That would all have been part of it. Massive earthquakes over the earth, catastrophic. I mean, there are a number of scientists now that are working on the theory that that you'll, you'll be aware of the fact that many believe that the, that the continents of the Earth are moving. Um, but there are some now that are suggesting that this is, was much more catastrophic than we believe, that it's not a slow, gradual thing. What happened was that there was a massive catastrophe. It started them moving and they're now slowing down to a slow speed. But in the beginning, it was not so. They moved very rapidly, so the Earth was massively impacted by this, uh, causing rapid continental drift and the formation of new mountains. I mean, the Himalayas, the Andes, the Alps, uh, you know, they're all new mountains. They're all, and they're all sedimentary mountains. They're mountains that have been covered by water and then buckled up. Almost certainly they happen at the end of the flood. I mean, on the top of the Himalayas, there are uh, seashells and sea creatures embedded in the rock five miles up in the air. You know, you have to say, you, you've got to have a theory as to why that happened. How could that happen? Well, the Bible actually gives you a total understanding of that, that following the flood and this massive geological upheaval, continents started crashing into one another and the mountain chain started to form. Now, this is not just something that is in the Bible. <clears throat> I mean, I've, I've seen it, I've actually seen it, there were 500 cultures, but I'm going to sell for 250 cultures worldwide have a theory about the flood. I mean, some of the details are a bit di di different and some are quite bizarre. I mean, that one there, we'll see it in a moment, is the Babylonian one. Uh, I mean, their ark is like a big square box. It's seven stories high and would be about as hydrodynamic as a brick. You know, so I think probably that's a bit 
But I mean, you got there, you know, they, people have often clothed the ark in their own culture. That one, they, they escaped the flood in a little sailing dhow. Uh, I heard of a, of, a, of a South American tribe that believed that a couple had got in a canoe and survived the flood and they landed on the top of a mountain and their children all started speaking different languages and they couldn't understand each other so they all had to spread and the family broke up and it sounds a bit familiar, doesn't it? So a lot of this stuff has got mingled in but it's not difficult to see that behind the, you know, all these different little accounts there is a truth. There is something that happened that impacted on the cultures of the world. So you got it in the Australian Aboriginals and the Chinese. Like, look, that one's like a flying saucer, that one. You know, the Norse, uh, you know. And I mean, uh, there's only a few up there, but like, yeah, every tribe, every people, they've got their own, um, uh, their own account of this massive thing. Now you could say, well, it's just coincidence. Well, if you believe that, you're entitled to believe that. To me, it has a ring of reality about it. Uh, there were 59 from North American Indians, 46 from Central and Southern America, 17 from Europe, not so many from there, 23 from Asia, 37 from Australia and the South Pacific. So all over the globe, there is the record of this event that happened. There's the Babylonian legend. That's more or less a scale model of what they think the Ark looked like. Uh, their flood hero was called Atnapishtim. Why couldn't it just be Noah? I mean, I ask you. Um, but anyway, Utnapishtim is the, is the flood hero. And I mean, the South American one is called Cox Cox. And there's a loads of different names for them, but you've got some that are quite resonant. The Chinese flood hero was called Nuwa. Mm, sounds a bit familiar. The Indian, um, the Sanskrit hero was called Manu. And it does make you wonder if that's where mankind came from. I mean, uh, it's, it's, it's all the people of Manu. Uh, it's interesting, isn't it? I think it's interesting. The Amazon, there's an Amazon tribe that, that called him Noah. And uh, an African Hottentots called him No. So, you, you know, you get, you get variety there, as you would expect with different peoples and corruptions and so on. But certainly, there's a lot of similarity. <clears throat> what about population figures? I mean... How could you put people the whole earth? What are we now? Six thousand, uh, six billion people, is it? Seven billion people? It's going up exponentially, as we say. Uh, so it probably seven million, seven billion now, seven thousand million people in the earth. People say, but how could you? You know, if the flood was only four and a half thousand years ago or thereabouts, how would you get all those people from two people only four and a half thousand years ago? Well, I have to say to you, you can. Okay, the world population growth at this current time is 1.7% per year, year on year. That doesn't sound like much, but exponentially that does mount up and gives us the kind of figures that we're getting in modern times. 1.7% per year worldwide. Now, interestingly, the growth in poorer countries is higher where they get famines and wars and instability and poverty and loads of problems, they're actually multiplying quicker than the world average. In Europe and the West, the percentage is half a percent or less. It's interesting, isn't it? 
So ladies, go forth and have some babies. We're running our babies. No, I don't mean that. We are running our babies in the West. We actually don't realise it. I mustn't digress onto that. Um, but because of birth control and because we prefer smaller families and because we want economic freedom and because we don't want to be poor with loads of children hanging around our necks, we tend to go for smaller and smaller families. But, but actually, it's not doing us any good. So it's only half a percent or less in the West. In Italy, there is now a nil growth rate. And I think Belgium is close on its heels and much of Europe is following. America is a bit, not quite so much, but is definitely going in the same direction. So you would have to say, historically, half a percent growth per year is quite small. If you had a half a percent per year from the time of the flood to now, from just eight people in the ark, that would be enough to populate the world with the current numbers. Can I hear you saying, who are? I mean, I think it's amazing. In fact, you wouldn't know this, but you can get the entire population of the world in the UK with about a metre to stand each. So you would be quite close, but that's an amazing thing to think, isn't it? You know what I mean? Seven billion people, you get them all in the UK, but it would be crowded. There wouldn't be a lot of room to stand. So although it, you often think, you know, the world is absolutely swarming with people, they're all concentrated in cities. In between, there's loads of great space. Now, here's another equation. Suppose humanity had gone back a million years, which is one of the kind of figures that um, uh, uh, sociologists and so on um, put around, that we've been you know, evolving and probably modern man has been around for a million years-ish. Okay, if the population had grown, this is from one couple, uh, grown by 100% per year, that's, that's, that's way less than a half a percent. Half a percent is low, one hundredth of a percent per year is exceedingly low, that's almost no growth at all. How many people would you think there would be in the earth today? No, it's not a trick question, it's just a very hard number to say, so I won't expect you to do it. There would now be that many people in the world. That's exponential growth. Now you can check the maths of that if you're more of an anorak than I am and you see what you think, but there would now be so many people in the world, you could not fit them in into the entire land surface of the planet as it is. In fact, if you had a million planets this side, you would not get them in. So, million years suddenly doesn't sound nearly so feasible as it does when they say it quickly on the telly. The human race has not been around for a million years, or if we have, we've now you say, well, it may be dramatically shrunk. Well, it did, it dramatically shrunk with Noah. But even from that, it's grown right up again to the current thing. Okay, we need a, well, I've said that. Okay, lastly, are you okay so far? Good. Last bit, the aftermath. Uh, Genesis 8, 1 to 5, I'll just read a bit of it. God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark. And he sent a wind over the earth, and the waters receded. Now the springs of the deep and the floodgates of the heavens had been closed, and the rain had stopped falling from the sky. And the water receded steadily from the earth, and at the end of 150 days the water had gone down. So it took quite a long time for that to happen. 
And on the seventeenth day of the seventh month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. Not on Mount Ararat, on the mountains of Ararat. Probably on Mount Mesha. And the waters continued to recede until the tenth month. And on the first day of the tenth month, the top of the mountains became visible. And after 40 days, Noah opened the window and you remember, let out the birds and so on and so on. So he very carefully did it. When the, when the ark grounded, there was still nothing much showing. Uh, Mount Ararat, which is a stratovolcano, would probably not even have been showing at this point. It may well have come along later uh, in the post-flood period. Okay, so what about the aftermath? Well, the Bible says that the waters receded from off the earth. That was quite a process. That would have taken quite a time. Uh, and so on. You can imagine the mess that would have occurred. Everything loose on the earth had been gathered up into that water. You know what I mean? Anybody that tells you that's been flooded will say it brings a pile of mess. You know, mud and silt and horrible stuff from off the earth. Will you imagine a flood that scoured off everything? Every bit of loose dirt, every tree, everything. Everything that could be swept away would have been swept away. So left behind at the end of the flood, there were massive layers of wet mud uh, that of course then slowly turned hard and became rock. Initially, as waters ran off, it would have cut deep channels through these rocks. It's thought that the Grand Canyon is a, is a flood runoff initially. It wasn't the Colorado River that cut that mile deep thing. It actually ran off. There was water locked up in the mountains and as it flowed off the land, it cut the channel through. Uh, a river couldn't, couldn't actually have done that. Uh, certainly not the current river that we have there. So it would have been, that kind of topography uh, would have been happening. Several months then passed by as the earth slowly shaped with land increasingly, layer upon layer of mud and stuff. <coughs> Transformed weather, of course, would have been a part of the package. Uh, in verse 1, it says, uh, chapter 8 again, it says, um, uh, God sent a wind over the earth and the waters receded. I, I suggest to you that they were probably quite strong winds. This was not a balmy breeze. Uh, they swept over the earth as the earth went into a complete and abrupt and different uh, scenario uh, and you've got, a you've got a fatal combination here. You've got warm oceans from all the volcanic activity plus the fact that the earth had been warm up to now. You've got warm oceans suddenly exposed to very cold air and winds. So huge amounts of water would have evaporated off the warm oceans and formed clouds. I suspect there were massive clouds. It's thought that Neanderthals were probably people that suffered with vitamin D deficiency because there was no sunshine. I mean, it might have been different where Noah was, but in the northern climes up into Europe, everything there was massive. It would have been a very, it would have been a very miserable time. You've had a flood, you're starting to scatter and spread over the earth, and every day is a cloudy day and rain. Well, we're familiar with that, aren't we? You know, uh, so this would have, this would have been the kind of Thing. But of course, it also is the scenario where you can get um, not just the torrential rainstorms, um, hence the rainbow now appears, hadn't been there before, now appears, first rain on the earth, um, and uh, the, you also get, of course, heavy snow. As the earth cools down, big, the north and south poles, I believe, at this point, froze over. 
You'll see in a minute that originally that was not so. Antarctica was not once frozen. So the, the great glaciers formed, particularly in the northern hemisphere, and because there's more land around the northern, you know, the North Pole, than there is the South Pole. The South Pole is mostly ocean, you know, apart from Antarctica, once you get out of it. So it, uh, it was on the land that these glaciers formed. The seasons took place, and it actually says that at the end of chapter 8, uh, probably because the Earth's axis had tilted with the impact of the flood event. That moved the world into the Ice Age. As the, and everybody, everybody accepts that, but nobody, no ordinary evolutionary scientist has an explanation for how an Ice Age would happen. Because you, you need warm water and cold air. You can't do it any other way. I mean, Antarctica is practically a desert. Not much snow falls in Antarctica. You get windblown snow, but there's not much because there's no moisture in the air. This is the, there's no water there. The air can't hold it because it's too cold. So the Ice Age needed very particular circumstances. That's roughly the extent of it in terms of the Northern Hemisphere. Nothing much in the South. It didn't really go very far, but you can see it's patchy, but huge quantities. So glaciers came right the way down, right the way over Great Britain. Really, the whole of Scotland and most of England, and certainly Wales, were covered by glaciers in the Ice Age. Now, that's a picture of ancient Antarctica. Now, it's not a photograph, I have to say to you, but it's the next best thing. I got it off the Geophysical Antarctic Survey website, and that's their view of what Antarctica once would have looked like. So that's authoritative, isn't it? If anybody knows, they should know. So once upon a time, Antarctica, now it's a mile deep in ice and snow. So I, Antarctica has changed. The world has changed. The world that we live in is a fallen planet. Geological change. That is, that is known there as the great unconformity. Um, you'll see that line there, along there. That is the, that is the old ancient basement rock that is metamorphic and, uh, and uh, can't think of the word for it, the other kind of rock, but not sedimentary rock. Then on top of those, you've got these, uh, these layers, these pancakes of mud that have now hardened to rock. We call them sedimentary rock. The, the earth was scoured clean. As we say, everything that was movable was moved. So the waters of the flood in many places were like mud, you know, like gunk. They just sell. That's, that's why so many fish died and have been fossilized, because they couldn't breathe in it. You know, they were just kind of carried along by the gunk and then just left there when the mud settled in its layers. The waters there were full of sediment uh, and so on. The 75% of the Earth's rock today is sedimentary. It's been laid down by water. Now, the, the classic geological explanation for that is complete rubbish. It doesn't begin to, you know, say after millions and millions of years, but nobody, how many rivers do you need to lay down this amount of stuff to bury so many creatures? You know, say, well, they all wandered down to the bog and then got stuck there and got buried over, but they don't. There are loads of creatures that have been buried in these things, massive rock units. I mentioned in one of my talks the Coconino sandstone layer, uh, which is one of the layers in the, uh, in the um, Grand Canyon. Uh, that layer is 600 feet in places, average about 50 feet thick. 50 feet thick of rock and 200,000 square miles. What kind of a river is going to dump that amount of rock? 
in one spot on one occasion. It's not, is it? You know what I mean? If you, if you want people to say, well, where's the evidence? The evidence is so big, you, you almost can't see around it. It's right in front of our eyes. So massive rock units. And of course, the coal seams and the oil, the fossil fuels that we're still living off now are the remains of a dead world. Of all the animals and creatures and, uh, and trees and plants uh, that were laid down by the flood. It has also left the world unstable. Um, that's a, a map of the earthquakes and volcanoes over the world. And you can see they're pretty much everywhere. None in England, <laughs> thankfully. Uh, but, uh, but pretty much everywhere else. The world is an unstable planet. And people say, well, why does God do this? No, he didn't. It is, is it a world that we've inherited as a result of God's judgment upon us. And it's been rendered unstable and, will, and, is not, and will be. Jesus said it will be until the final end. The flood then changed the world. I'm getting down to the end of it. Uh, you'll notice there that that's a boat parked in somebody's house. They obviously couldn't get it in the garage. <laughs> uh, sorry, it's a bit of a joke there. Um, I was probably not funny, but uh, uh, it's the kind of stuff that happens uh, in our world today. Catastrophes and so on all over the world. Hurricanes, tornadoes, earthquakes, volcanoes. They are not natural disasters. They were not part of the plan in the beginning. They are part of the fact that man has sinned and God's judgment upon it is still working out for us. We live in a hostile environment. We're, I mean, we're, you know, the, the Bible indicates that from then onwards, after the flood, we were given permission to eat meat. Why would that be? That would be because no longer could the plant life provide the protein and the nutrition that we needed. God didn't change his mind. He didn't plan that we would be meat eaters. Well, I have to say I do like a burger, but there you go. But it's okay. Um, but but the, the permission was given because the earth is now hostile. Many people would not be able to survive. They would suffer with malnutrition if it were not for God giving us permission in his mercy to eat meat. And the Bible indicates that the lifespans were plummeting. Noah lived to 900, his sons lived to 600, and it goes down. I mean, Abraham lived to 180, Moses 120, and then it goes down to 80. That's the normal span of a human being. But it indicates something has happened. Everything's got smaller. We're smaller than they once were. The animals are smaller than they once were. The earth couldn't support what it once supported. It is a poorer planet than it was. Now, you look out and you think, actually, it's not bad. It's pretty good. On a summer's day or a spring day, you think it's wonderful. And it is wonderful. That's because of the mercy of God that still constantly seeks and reaches out to people and seeks to win them to himself. But we are very stubborn, really. Uh, in wanting to go our own way. Okay, a few conclusions to finish. <clears throat> People have said it could have been a local flood. I don't think so. If it's going to cover the mountains, you would have to have a wall somewhere to stop it flowing out. A global flood can, can be the only solution to a craft that is 5,000 foot or 6,000 6, foot above sea level. We know what a local flood can do. Uh, a global flood is unique, one-off, will never happen again. And God says it will never happen again. Uh, secondly, it is not a natural disaster, as we've already been saying, uh, because a warning was given. 
You know, and that's why, in a sense, it's kind of cast iron. You know, I mean, you, 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 we laugh at the idea of an act of God today. You know what I mean? I think it comes on insurance certificates when they don't want to pay you. But mostly, we don't accept that as a category. We always think there's some human agency or there's something we should have done or we've been running too many diesel cars or something like that. There's, some kind of, there's something we've done that's, that's obviously done it. The idea that God might actually act in his own world, in his own time, in his own way, is so far from our thinking, we'd be offended by it. But, the, but, but this, this account indicates to me very clearly that God is an agent in the world, that this was a God event that God did it out of love for us to bring surgery, to make it possible for Jesus to come so that men and women could be saved. That is still his heart concern and that, that which drives uh, him through generations. Thirdly, Noah had access to technology uh, that challenges our normal ideas. <clears throat> the Bible gives hints about that, but this, to me, certainly seems to indicate it. Fourthly, we are puny before such massive power. Now you may say, well if I ruled the world, every day would be the... Well you don't. I mean we stand in the presence of God who is awesome and mighty. Thankfully the Bible says he is good and holy and compassionate and loving. If he wasn't, we would be in a pickle. But men often shake their fists at heaven and criticise God. You can't do that. Yeah, if you stand criticizing God, I tell you who's going to lose. He's very big. So before such massive, before the power that can, can move planets and release oceans and do stuff on a global scale, we are small. Could it be that it's a warning for today? In Luke 17, verse 26 to 27, Jesus said, just as it was, in the days of Noah, so also will it be in the days of the Son of Man. In other words, Jesus actually makes a, 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 an application here. He says, you remember Noah, what happened then? It's, it's happening again. Judgment is coming again. I mean, it's a bit serious, isn't it? I mean, all the, all the themes that we've got in this series to some extent have got a kind of a future reference. They're not just, you know, they're not just past, they're also future. And Jesus brings this right up to the present and the future and says, look, there, you know, that which God has done, there will come a time when he, he will not judge it by water again. That's never going to happen again. But judgment will come again and we do need to be ready. And I ask myself the question, has the ark been found now because Jesus is returning soon? Has the Ark of the Covenant been found now? Have people been able to go to the Sodom and Gomorrah now? Because we are living in very significant days. It could be we are living in the more significant days by far than we realise. Well, what do we do about this? I would like to say, come and see me afterwards and I'll talk you through what you can do about it. However, I'm going to recommend a way up, of course. Uh, it's on YouTube, as many of you will know. Uh, but if you particularly are thinking, well, what do I do about that? You know, I mean, if judgment is coming, am I going to be safe from that? You know, will I get by on my good deeds? Will I be okay? Well, I can tell you, you won't get by on your good deeds. No, you need somebody to help you. And if you go to Way Up Course, Series 2, Number 5, 
then there is a question there that we try to answer. What must I do? And if that doesn't help you, come and see me next week and I will gladly do all that I can to answer. I mean, this is really quite serious stuff. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you, Father, that, uh, that, that, that you've cared enough about this planet to visit it. And thank you that you're the living God. And you've moved through history and we can find your footprints marking on the earth as you march through it and do deeds. And we pray, Lord, that we wouldn't be men and women that would be asleep, but would be open and alert and seek to help and to speak to others in such days as these, so that we'd be able to process this stuff, this material, and be able to speak it forth wherever we can. So, Father, hear our prayer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, we've got, uh, we, we haven't exactly got a question, we've just got a statement, um, which I think is interesting and worth repeating, uh, not immediately uh, relevant, but a sort of. Sir Charles Lyell, the author of Principles of Geology, I mean, he was the guy that really set the framework for uh, the whole modern view of geology, millions of years and everything else that uh, is now taught in all the universities and schools in the country. Sir Charles Lyell was the thing. He wrote, we must, we must rid ourselves of the mosaic tradition. Though he himself was not a geologist, he was a lawyer and he became a mentor of Charles Darwin. And the rest, as they say, is history. So, I mean, that is an interesting postscript to put at the end of this. You know, right back then, these guys, several of them, I mean, were, were quite, you know, often in private correspondence, because at that time the Christian view was, was fairly much accepted by everybody, um, but no doubt about it, their idea was to kill the Bible and to get the biblical account off the agenda. Now, I mean, they have been uh, very successful in that. And, uh, <clears throat> however, we're not going down without a fight. Okay, anybody, anybody else got any questions or anything on that? Otherwise, we'll say good night. God bless you all. And next week, we're looking at the Tower of Babel, which is another massive biblical theme, which we can see working out now in the current time. So I hope you'll come back for that and find that interesting. And if you can find anybody else that wants to come along, do encourage them and bring them along. Oh, by the way, we've got now, what was your name? Oh, it's, it's a, she, Turkish is a very difficult language. Yeah. It, it about equals Hungarian in my book. But, uh, but here, our dear sister is actually from Turkey and knows all about the places that I've been talking about. And as she said, I mean, the Mount Ararat is a very holy mountain to the Armenians to this day. All the people in the area know about it and know what's there. But it doesn't get through to the west. If you had a TV program in it, it would probably be to rubbish it. Good, okay everybody, be blessed.